Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Jody Scardillo. Welcome to this week's edition of Walk Talk. This week, we sit down with Dr. Dia Kent. Dia is employed at Indiana University Kokomo in the School of Nursing and is currently serving as the president-elect of our society. Today, we're going to be discussing a new document the society just released entitled Guidance for Maintaining Skin Health When Utilizing Protective Masks for Prolonged Time Intervals. Thanks for joining me, Dia. Thanks for asking me to come and join you. I'm excited. Good, good. So the WOCN Society just came out with a guidance document for maintaining skin health when utilizing protective masks for prolonged time periods around the COVID-19 pandemic that's going on. And so we were hoping we would talk a little bit about that today. So I have a few questions for you, of course. And I guess the first one is, why did the society develop this document? The society is committed to putting information into the hands of our members for use. And in this case, this document about skin health with the facial protective equipment, we know that around the country there have been issues with skin health. And so since we, the wound nurses of the world, are called upon to deal with this unprecedented problem in an unprecedented time, we decided that we would take some best practices that have been established with some of our colleagues in the society and kind of put pen to paper to help people have guidance with things that may work, may mitigate issues that they see or may help solve some of the issues that they're seeing in around the country, just from places who have especially had a high volume of patients and have had to have their workers of all disciplines in PPE for a prolonged period of time. So we felt like having a practical, pragmatic document was a good solution and a good help for those whom we serve. So was it hard to find literature to support this or was there any literature to support this when you all started to work on this project? Of course, there is literature that is present related to medical device-related pressure injuries. And as we know, those are usually related to patient care episodes and not healthcare workers at large. While there is some literature available, we made a conscious decision to not take the time to search out the literature, but instead to use practical solutions that have been proven and sustained in some large agencies across the country to develop this guidance document. We believe literature is very important, but in this case, we think the literature additions will come later once we get through the pandemic about this lived experience. And instead, again, we just wanted to empower and give as much practical knowledge as we could to folks around the country. So does the guidance document talk about different types of masks? Because depending on the situation and I think a little bit the geographical location, people are using different types of masks and also the patient situation too. That is true. So the document does discuss a variety of FPE, facial protective equipment. And the FPE that we discuss does include the N95 mask, which are an individually fitted mask, as well as the other types of 
facial coverings that are not individually fitting, such as thin surgical type masks, even face shields that rest on the forehead and come down below the chin, and everything in between. We tried to globally address things, keeping in mind that the N95 should be individually fitted and kept that in mind when discussing the guidance that was given. Okay. So what is the main suggestion for skin protection? Is there one that you would think is the most commonly used by the most areas that you looked at? So when we're talking about prevention, prophylaxis, mitigating injury, the primary intervention seems to be an alcohol-free barrier film that's placed at strategic places on the face or could be even painted, so to speak, on the face. So primarily looking at sites like the bridge of the nose, the cheeks, the forehead, even behind the ears, depending on the equipment, perhaps the chin, where we have the mandible that comes to a point right here and is prominent. Everybody's face is different. But that alcohol-free barrier film, which provides a polymer to the skin to cut friction and things like that, seems to be a key to mitigating issues across the country at this point when there are no issues. And then we kind of have a a separate problem, which is that what happens when Things do happen when someone gets either a pressure injury or a friction-related injury or a moisture-related injury, some type of skin integrity issue when they're wearing masks. That is kind of a separate issue, which is a little more difficult to speak about. Because when we're talking about N95s, with those being individually fitted, if we were to do anything underneath that N95 that would make the seal different, or stretch the skin, or make the profile of the N95 differently, then really that would require a second N95 fit. And at this point in time, the point is patient care. And I think agencies by and large are not able to take the time to refit the N95s. So the mitigating approach is the focus of the document. Although we do strongly talk about not manipulating the skin surface under the N95s without guidance from the agency because we just really feel like the individually fitted mask must stay individually fitted without a change in profile to maintain healthcare worker safety. So then you mentioned the skin barrier protective film. So I'm assuming you mean a wipe or versus a spray. A wipe or a lollipop or something like that. But I think a spray would be difficult because we're talking about the facial area. And so if something is sprayed, then the aerosolization of that can go other places, including inside the eye. So I don't think that's the safest choice for application of alcohol-free barrier. I believe something that is located in a vehicle like a pledge, like a lollipop, like a swab, that would be much better uh, and more preferred in this case. Okay, great. And then this maybe is a question that the person should read the product information, but how often are we suggesting that that be applied? Is there a a direction on that or is that a read the package insert kind of question? You could certainly read the package insert, but what we have found with our colleagues around the country that have contributed to this document, the once a day or one-time application, once a shift, put on your PPE, which is typically what people are doing, lasts. 
And then it lasts the whole shift. And so then when you come back tomorrow, you put on a new application on and the next time and the next time and so on. So we're not suggesting that multiple applications are necessary. They do not seem to be once and done for this shift seems to be enough. Okay. And then what about the person who would uh, use cosmetics or maybe uh, does a routine moisturizer like after their shower or whatever they do before they come to work? What do you suggest about that? That's a great question. Of course, we know as wound nurses that whenever the skin has a lot of emollient on it, then we get adhesive that won't do its thing. And that's going to be the same case for allowing the barrier film to work or even having an N95 or other mask seated correctly on your face without slippage. If the skin is very, very moist or emolliated, if it's got a lot of emollient because you've just moisturized before you've come to work, that actually is a barrier that's protection. So what we recommend in the document is that you do take some extra measures on your skin at this point because our skin is taking kind of a beating with the PPE and the FPE. However, when you go home at night and you're getting your shower, we recommend that you go ahead and moisturize then and just as you are showering and getting your body clear of the day and your mind clear of the day, your skin can be taken care of at that time and recharged for tomorrow when you go back to work and have to again don your FPE and other equipment to take care of patients. But we don't suggest moisturization right before. It's got to be done several hours in advance. Okay, that makes sense. So on social media, I've seen these little fabric strips with buttons on them or these little rigs with headbands and bobby pins to keep the ear straps of masks away and to theoretically decrease pressure. And I know people are making those as well as making cloth masks and all of that. Was there any discussion about those pressure-relieving strippy types of things or any consensus about whether they're safe to use? Or can you talk about that a little, Dia? Certainly. So those headbands really have worked to save a lot of people's ears and some of the skin behind their ears. There's no doubt about it. We can all find social media where people are so thankful and lots of people are making those for healthcare workers and donating them. And that's great. So from a standpoint of what do we do to maintain skin health as well as not create a barrier to the personal protective equipment being as effective as it can be. The document really speaks to this, and that is any type of mitigating measure like the headbands that changes the individually fitted N95 mask cannot be recommended because, again, we don't want to change the plane of the N95 sitting on the face. We don't want to change the seating. We don't want to impair the seal. We don't know if we put extra pressure on the elastic band. How does that change the way the N95 sits on the face? So with other masks, that may be fine, but not the individually fitted N95. Ultimately, we have to let the guidance about the headband, elastic button garments be the choice of the local agency as far as whether they're used with, you know, the N95 or even others. I think that the thing we have to be the most cautious about is not changing the seal of that N95. I think that caution should be exercised, and I don't believe we could recommend them for those. They may be useful in other areas. Guidance should ultimately be sought from your local administration. 
Okay, good. And then I've also seen in my travels for looking for information for our staff, information about using a hydrocolloid or a piece of a foam dressing to pad areas that might be getting pressure from the mask. What was the recommendation about that? I'll sound like a broken record, but under the N95, the individually conforming mask, we cannot recommend anything underneath that mask because of the fit and seal. Now, if your facility has the ability to refit the N95, should something need to happen, that's up to the local agency's authority to decide to allow that to happen, but we cannot endorse anything that is going to go unchecked. However, with surgical masks or other masks that don't require individual fitting, a thin, not a big, a thin profile hydrocolloid or a thin foam dressing may be helpful to protect or heal skin in the areas. These dressings should be used with caution because the hydrocolloid certainly has a seal on it. And we all know being wound providers that that can be an aggressive seal. We expect it to be. That's why we use it. And so if a thin hydrocolloid is applied to an area, then we recommend that it's going to stay in place for up to seven days because we don't want people to put a hydrocolloid on and take it off in 12 hours, or there is going to be an inordinate amount of skin stripping and more damage to the skin than what was there before the hydrocolloid got put on, most likely. Foam dressings are a little more forgiving. Again, we need the thin profile kind. Those are a little different. They may be able to be removed every time, depending on if they've got any adhesive on them, if they're non-adhesive and you're just allowing the mask to seat them in place. Those can be helpful. I think one thing that I've heard, it's not in the document, but in feedback since the document has been released from some of our colleagues around the country, is that when hydrocolloids are put behind the ear, behind the pinna, they tend to get very goopy. There's so much heat and sweat behind the ear that they tend to not work very well. But on the face, they may be helpful, but not with an N95. We cannot recommend anything that will impair the seal. Ultimately, local guidance is going to need to be sought and what the agency allows is best. But if we get to use the hydrocolloid, it needs to be the thin profile. Thinner is better because we're looking at protection and we need to keep it on until it kind of loosens and falls off, so up to seven days. And underneath that hydrocolloid, you may have already put some alcohol-free barrier film to help even seat that adhesive a little better and provide some protection. So we just need to make sure that if we're using those dressings, we're using them sort of to the full extent of their use for as many days as they can be used and that we are careful to avoid skin stripping from a measure that was meant to help. Okay, that makes perfect sense. So I happen to love the WOCN forums, and whenever I have a clinical problem or I'm working on a project, I go there because usually someone else has had the same question or has great information about what's worked and what hasn't worked in their organization. So I happen to be on there this week, and there's a forum now that's related to COVID-19. Can you update us a little bit about what's going on with that? So the society has consciously chosen to make a COVID-19 resource page. And of course we have the forum. And if you have a question that is specific to this topic or something else that might be related to the coronavirus or COVID, 
you may find that that might be a best place to post your question, to find answers. Certainly the other forums are open and available and there could be questions there, but we wanted to try to make it easy to direct people to one location for issues that are relating specifically to what we're experiencing with this situation. I encourage everybody to go and post comments, give perceptions and give lived experience advice to others because we're all in this together and we need to tap into the resources of each other in order to do this to our very best level and to work to protect each other in the ways that we know, in the ways that we're expert at, which is related to skin issues, certainly. Yeah, we're really in such uncharted territory. I think now having our colleagues to collaborate with is more important than ever because so much of this is so new. Where might I find this document? So now I'm listening to this podcast and I'm like, I didn't know about this. And I'm a walk nurse and I'm getting questions from the staff in my organization. Where might I go to get this document that we're talking about today, Dia? Well, you certainly can go to wocn.org and hit the coronavirus or the COVID-19 resource page and it will live there. We have placed it everywhere on social media. We've put it on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook It can be located easily on our Facebook page if you're a Facebook user. And if you cannot figure out how to do anything else, then in the Google bar of your browser, then you can certainly put in WOCN guidance for maintaining skin health when using masks or any of those words. And I think that it will come up just fine. We're really excited that during WOC Nurse Week that a lot of attention has been being paid to us anyway. And so we're happy that this guidance is available for our members and anybody else who's visited even our Facebook page because we know we have other professionals, other people that we're working with side by side everybody from environmental services to the maintenance people to physical therapists and nurse aides and radiology techs and physicians and PAs and NPs and everybody that I didn't mention that can benefit from the document. As you find it and as you search for it, we encourage you to share it with your colleagues and just really get the word out to everyone. And I'll say this, Jody, we wrote this primarily thinking about healthcare workers. But we now know that the general public is wearing home-sewn masks that are made out of lots of different things, lots of different elastic type things that fit behind their ears. And so it is possible that we are going to see people with skin injuries that live down the street and things like that. And so these are the same kind of interventions that may be able to work for some of them. This document provides guidance for where we're at in our whole world life at this point because we're all in the same boat, not just in the agency or in the home care environment or in the long-term acute care or long-term care environment, but even just at the grocery store. The principles that are here will work for everybody. And so I encourage you to help us to get the word out, disseminate the document, and make sure your friends and your colleagues know that we're here to help you and to help them. That's great. You know what other thing I didn't mention to you before too, there's a picture of a person's head with this pressure points marked on it so that if I were a non-medical person who wasn't really sure what to do with a prep and where to put it, the person's head with dots in the right place is a good teaching aid for somebody who maybe isn't a nurse. It would be good to print this out and then have that available maybe if you had, say, housekeeping or 
somebody else that was requiring masks for a long time. It shows you right where you should place the, the barrier film. And so there's no mistaking about how to do that correctly. That was a good idea. All right. So what's the best advice you'd give a person listening to this podcast who maybe isn't sure what to do about PPE and skin protection in their clinical practice? So I guess I'm asking you about like maybe a nurse or a healthcare worker who has some questions about what we talked about or about pressure relief and protective equipment. What would you suggest to somebody to do to get info? First of all, if there happens to be a non- certified wound care nurse that's asking the question, then I would recommend that that professional seek out a wound professional to help navigate all questions about pressure, even related to PPE. However, at large, if there are questions about how to use PPE, FPE, is this okay, this guidance from the WOC Nurses Society, is this something we can implement in our agency? Because right now, maybe we just have PPE. We've never even heard about alcohol-free barrier film. I would encourage a download of the document, a conversation with a unit manager, with a supervisor, the director of nursing, to talk about this practice and to talk about whether it would be a practice that seems suitable for that agency and really just explore together the local environment and what's going on to decide if this best practice document from lived experience is something that is something that can be easily integrated or should be integrated in their agency. And of course, we're medical nursing people. So see one, do one, teach one. So spread the word right? So put on your stuff, help somebody else, and then let them help somebody else. That's my best advice. (laughs) That's a great advice in the current healthcare environment. All right. What else is important that maybe I didn't ask you about that our listeners should be aware of or might want to know? Anything? I think that we've covered the document a lot, but I think that what I'd like to say is, in general, The Wound Osteocontinence Nurses Society is just dedicated to empowering its members, but empowering people who are interested in wound osteocontinence issues. And that we want to be a resource for you and for your agency, for your administrators, and that if there's anything we can help with, we want to. We have a wide variety of resources that are free to people, all nurses, for example, on our continuing education site on our website. We have lots of free CEs. We really are committed to getting good information into the hands of those who care for people who really have a lot of issues that make them feel vulnerable. We just want to be a resource. So I encourage people to call up or email their local wound nurse um, and talk to him or her about concerns with patients, with what's going on in their own world or with PPE, and certainly the agency at large as a global guide to help give advice and information and education to agencies at large. We really are committed to making people and their skin a lot better. And so we want to be the resource that you call. We'd like to help in any way that we can. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining me. I look forward to implementing this document in my own practice. Thank you. For more information related to WOC nurse practice and COVID-19, you can go to the WOCN website at wocn.org 
backslash page backslash COVID-19. There you will find a link to the forum and this document that we've been discussing and other things related to COVID-19 and WOC nurse practice. The WOCN Society does not support or endorse products or services. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit WOCN.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's WOCN.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk. Walk Talk.